0: Uh, yes, uh, Vince and I now have another guest here in the studio, another candidate for the general election, and we say welcome to uh, Andrew Turner. Welcome to uh, Saint Fe Andrew.
1: Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Vince. Good to be back.
0: Yeah, welcome. Yes, and uh, we start with, a, like we normally start here, to figure out a little bit what your interests are as a politician. You get involved in all kind of issues, but if you are successful in the election you get in and you get in a position of power uh, which would be your favorite areas and would be what would be what you tackle first
1: i think step 1 is to tackle the sort of the, the downward economic spiral we've been in of late things have not gone well recently from an economic perspective We have a strong dependence on the UK for the vast majority of our island's money. We know that our financial aid settlement is only going to get smaller over the years, definitely not bigger, Um, so we we need to sit down and we need to work out how we can make that pot of money go further. I'd like to see us learn a bit from the private sector on that front. They've always had a rough time of things. They know how to stretch every penny to survive and I think we need to use that kind of thinking that way, we may have a little bit more budget to play with afterwards. You know, we can, then we can look at things like improving social care, health care, particularly, and of course, the backbone of everything, our infrastructure. Yeah, That's yeah, step one.
0: Yeah, yeah, you mean that operating, saint in government as a company, more or less?
1: No, well, not quite to that sense, because obviously, you know, thankfully, in government's not aiming to make profits or anything, but just learning those lessons of how to streamline, how to be efficient, how to make that, that limited budget we're going to have go as, do as much with it as possible.
0: Yes. I mean, like with a uh, private company, number one is not to make profit. Number one is to survive. (laughs) And uh, that's Especially especially you. Uh, Yes. Uh, uh, Of course. Uh, But you have to survive first and make profit after. Okay. So, uh, but which area should we tackle now to make the money and make the money go further, spending it wisely, what should we do?
1: So, something I'm keen to explore would be the potential of introducing a new tax bracket, looking at the the highest earners. Because... I think we've got to make sure that those who are able to pay do pay, and those, those who are struggling aren't basically, we can't get the blood out of a stone, as I've been saying to a lot of people recently. So it's making sure that those who are earning the absolute highest are the ones who are sort of the basis of the tax. And then in terms of development, you know, we've got to take multiple approaches. We, we can't rely on tourism, although I don't think we should completely ignore it. At some point, we're going to have to work out how we can work that around COVID. The, the cable can bring all sorts of opportunities, ground stations are one, but we need to look at other revenue generators, such as secure data storage facilities and things like that. It would be you know, amazing locally to have the improved connectivity for things like the schools, the telemedicine, the but we can't, again, 100% rely on the cable either, just because it's, it's unproven territory. So, again, there's lots of other areas we need to be looking at, any potential money makers we should be exploring at this point. Isn't it true to
0: say that the cable itself is not the money maker, it's a tool to make mm-hmm. the money? The same as to a certain extent the airport, because th- the airport in itself is a loss maker, yes. but it enables things to happen, and then it's what we use it for. Is that what you are on, on about? Basically, and yes. The yeah. Your, your I- ideas around that?
1: So, again, you know, we need to look... So the current idea I've been hearing a lot about is is uh, this idea of satellite ground stations and having companies come here to operate ground stations using our line. But there's there's other things we need to look at as well, like the, the secure data centres. Saint Helena has a is a prime prime location for those. We are free pretty much of natural disasters. <laughs> Fingers touch wood. Um, we are politically stable. So, in terms of having a, a secure place to store all your all your valuable data, you know, you look at big companies like Facebook. They need massive data centers. The more, the merrier, and that's only going to become bigger as the as the world improves its its sort of connectivity. So,
2: yeah, there's the, a the, 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 the specialist came on the plane on Friday, was it? Um, yeah, cyber security, um, cyber security, security chat, Wes Lewis. Lewis. So. Um, yeah, that'll be a good thing to um, test him on actually. Mm. Um, how hack-proof are we? For that? Absolutely. And maybe at the moment we're not as hack-proof as we should be. But to change the subject um, slightly or, or a lot here, you, 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 know, you, you wonder who are going to put themselves forward to be ministers, etc. But uh, putting that one aside for the moment, what importance do you give to the scrutiny committees
1: you can't have one without the other Uh, the whole point of having a ministry is okay you've got this accountability but you need people up there right there straight away holding them to account otherwise you've just got a minister going off on their track doing their thing and nobody saying "Oh, hang on have you thought about this so you you cannot have one without the other
2: Mm. Um, so without putting words into your mouth I'm leading you a little bit here, I, I admit that, but I think what I can interpret from what you're saying is you need councillors of equal calibre on the scrutiny committees Absolutely. Uh, as ministers.
1: Absolutely. Mm. And there, needs, and there needs to be a sort of a healthy relationship between the two where one can critique the other without it turning into, I think, like we've had over the last few years, where we've had sort of a bit of a war between Exco and Ledgeco, and it's, it's nobody wins when that happens. So you need to have a group of people who can take the criticism as well as give it in a way mm. that's constructive. Mm.
2: Yeah. So, so if, if the scrutiny committee worked well in a constructive critical but constructive manner you you could see probably more cohesion maybe than we did before
1: has to
0: be Mm. has to be yeah Uh, yes and uh, if we move now away from that you know that what it looks like in a way is that we're going to get the different portfolios and we're ministers for the portfolio And apart from, I know a lot of people want to be chief minister, uh, but apart from that, which would be the areas which you would prefer to be active in? Because what you're saying about making more money and spending the money more wisely, there is, uh, it's fully understandable. But which areas should we focus on to? Well,
1: obviously, that's something you can do across the board. You know, every department needs to be looking at how they can be more streamlined essentially but if I was to if I was to pick a particular portfolio we would either have to be health and social care I feel like that's something I'm, I'm very strongly for and safety security home affairs because it's got a lot of things that I've, I've obviously got quite a lot of interest in police and access to justice courts human rights areas like that I, I feel like I, I have a lot of the background knowledge I would need to do good there
2: right. Can I, um since we're moving on to this, I'll ask you a, the same question I asked Derek Thomas just now. In most governments, the, uh, the three main areas uh, should be, and, norm- and normally is if you've not got a dictatorship, is um, health, education and housing. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about health, we hear a lot about education. But housing, how would you beef that one up? Because there is a problem now definite problem.
1: Absolutely, it's, it's one of the most difficult thing being a young person trying to sort of get established here and start a family here is finding a house you know, the bank doesn't lend enough money for you to buy one even if you're on a decent salary and rents are astronomical at the moment and that's actually something I think we could look at in terms of helping young people get into houses in particular is use the bank more. St. the Government has a bank of its own pretty much it's such a useful economic driver to have that. So look, talk to the bank, work with the bank to work on their lending rates so that young people can actually get the loans in the first place to build the houses. You know, That has the added bonus of the construction industry which will have something to do because <laughs> people will be building houses again and we won't have to have everyone going to the Falklands and to Ascension just to be able to build their home. Well,
0: mm. mm. uh, yes, it's uh, not because of myself, I might not be in that position, but the, the problem is also there for older people, that during their lifetime, when they earn money, they can afford to rent, but they can't when they retire, um, and they can't go to the bank, uh,
1: we need to improve our social housing offer, our government landlord housing offer. Because I know they're building these CDA houses and that absolutely needs to continue, but there's some other developments going up as well. Places like Bunkers Hill and other big housing developments that should bring a good boost for that. Something I'd like to see is the concept of uh, planning gain. So when people come in, they say, right, I want to build 100 luxury homes. Part of the planning permission should be for every, for every 10 home luxury homes you build, one social house one house that can be used for, for social care. and get a lot that way, I think.
2: Yeah, once again, I mean, that, that kind of stuff has been going on in the UK and elsewhere for decades and decades now. <laughs> yes, and, and obviously... Why, well, why not here? Eh?
1: Well, obviously we well, I suppose money's got something <laughs> to do with it. What do you think? <laughs> I think, yeah, money always has things to do with it. Money's the be-all and end-all of most of our problems, isn't it? But... Again, when it comes to looking at issues like this, it's, it's about finding our own way, it's about finding our own problems. You know, Look to the UK for inspiration, great, but we need to do our own research, we need to find our sort of our saint solutions to these problems, because if we, if we can't just say copy and paste planning gain ideas from, from the UK because they've got housing developments going on constantly, we maybe get three or four big tickets in every ten years, so we need to look at it our own way. And frankly, I think a lot of our problems could be solved just by looking for our, our own sane solutions, rather than relying on the UK for for the answers. I'll pursue that
2: one a bit more. I didn't I didn't pick up Derek on this one actually because time is pressing. But he did say, "There's a shortage of land." Okay, we know there's only 47 square miles here, and you've got to look after it. But there's so much crown wasteland. Mm. I mean. Um, we can't say there's a shortage of land for development, can we? When there's that kind of situation exists.
1: Well, quite right. I mean, s- land is obviously same, one of the same thing as most precious resources because there's a very finite amount of it. But I mean, just off the top of my head, you look at the whole Road. That massive road they've built has just given us access, straight big main road access to huge swathes of land that could be that could be built on if gone about the right way. Obviously you don't want, you know, ugly housing developments on our our scenic areas, but with a bit of change into thinking perhaps even of how we build houses, you know, looking at things like living roofs and things like that, you could make so much good use of these lands, these areas. Are otherwise being underutilised or not
0: utilised at all? We we'll talk about wasteland. Um, do you agree? If I'm saying that the difference between wasteland and productive land is one thing, and that's water, <laughs> uh, because the infrastructure must be in place, electricity, with modern technology, that's more or less sorted. Uh, uh, water is a little bit trickier. So what do we do to improve? So we have, if we have more water, we have less wasteland. If you do, if you have Lots of water that has to be cheap. We can't talk about irrigating vast parts of the island with uh, desalinated water or anything. We we must have a a relatively cheap resource.
1: And water is such a tricky one for us to tackle because we've we've sort of, over over the the last 10 years or so, gone down a particular path of this idea of privatising our water supply. And, frankly, I think 4,500 potential customers, you cannot make a viable water business out of that it's never going to be, I don't think, even a break-even, although I'd love to be proved wrong on that. <laughs> but I don't think it's even going to be a break-even business, never mind a, a you know, proper private sector entity. So I think maybe we need to look a little bit more about bringing water back towards as a, as a service rather than as, as a business, because you cannot operate it like one.
0: Well, the difference between able to sell the land and not being able to sell the land would be water, wouldn't it?
1: Yes. So, so the, 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 the,
0: the government can sell the land and get money that way instead yes. of directly of the water?
1: Yeah, that could help too. And obviously there's, there's lots of, of um, global initiatives to help improve water supply in the rest of the world, but they won't give money to businesses. But you could more likely persuade them to give money grants to, to governments to improve things like the water network which obviously needs doing. We need to improve the water security as well. We've, we've only recently had droughts. Every three years, it seems to be. And you know, if we're still having droughts, we can't talk about irrigating more land, yet if we can't even keep the houses in water, keep water flowing out of the taps. So I think just by bringing, bringing water back in house a little bit more, you can, you can get access to these kind of grants from these, from these bigger charities and groups like that who want to, to improve water networks around the world. And then, obviously, that gives you the advantage of being able to use that that extra to yeah, make more land accessible for arable production, for hmm. agriculture, whatever it else is, it needs to be used for in forestry. Going back to what you mentioned
0: before, you said that health would be something that you would be interested in. So how do you s- look at it? We have had, I think health have had a challenging time. To say the least. <laughs> yes, uh, that's your words. Uh, but what would you do to improve uh, the situation? Everybody trying to, but it's not easy.
1: As one person put it to me recently, I think we have a very good case to state that our facility is not fit for purpose. And I think COVID has helped us realize that in a lot of ways and that our hospital just is not equipped to deal with the kind of issues we have are now having to put through it. So obviously the hospital is a tricky one to so sort. If we need a new facility that's built for our current and indeed our future needs, that's going to need a massive amount of capital funding. I don't think that will be forthcoming unless we can prove to the UK we can spend it wisely. That being said, we're costing, the St. Clean government is costing in a roundabout way the UK government substantial amounts of money in medical referrals and in a lot of cases court settlements and other such things. So we could argue to the UK that spending that lump sum now will save them in the future maybe they'll go for that it's certainly worth a try we have to we have to to put that bid in obviously medical referrals and that associated cost of the health Directorate are one of the leading causes of people going into poverty on the island you know so many time, times you see people going into hardship because their uncle their dad their, their auntie whoever's got to go overseas for um, cancer life-saving cancer treatments and things like that so by building a new hospital, the more of these things we can treat on Ireland, the better, not just from a saving government money, but from, from people's perspective too. Obviously recovery from serious illnesses is so much easier when you're at home and you have your family and your friends and everyone there who can support you as well. Some cases will always have to go overseas. You know, we cannot build a hospital that can treat everything. That's, it, it just wouldn't work again with the 4,500 people and the economies of scale. But, again, I don't see why we can't put that bid to the UK and say, look, it cannot continue as is, it's costing you money, it's costing us money, one lump sum now, and we can put this to bed.
0: Does the new hospital, would that in itself help? Because really, the medical care, all kind of care, is more dependent on who you put in there. We're we're talking about recruitment process and so Mm -hmm. forth.
1: So that's actually something, again you know we have a quite common complaint is the continuity of care at the hospital you go and see one doctor for this issue and then when you come back to the next appointment that doctor's gone and you've got a new doctor and then you know it's like going to two different mechanics each one has a, a different interpretation of what's wrong with you in a whole different course of treatment yeah, and solutions no, you're, you're for you expect the
2: same if you go and see a lawyer don't
1: worry <laughs> <laughs> But. Uh, I'm sorry, I've stopped you. No, all I was going to say is that maybe we need to look at our recruitment process and look at the kind of people we're recruiting. I'd like to see us look for doctors who want to come and they want to settle, who want to become a part of the community. Even if that means maybe looking for older doctors who are maybe towards the tail end of their career looking for a nice place to retire. You want people who want to come, want to stay, want to become part of the community. Actually, uh, be- get to know the patient. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think you get a better quality of medical care for them <laughs> from from that perspective as well, because they know that they're gonna they're gonna see you next week, mm. walking you know when they go to the pub or whatever, or walking down the street when they're buying their onions. You can buy onions. <laughs>
2: yeah, my, my, I've got living onions in my vegetable right? Anyway, I won't go away.
1: And um, that obviously does provide a lot of help for people with long term illness. Just having that continuity of care, the same doctor seeing you through the whole process.
2: Yeah. Okay, staying on health, but on a different tack. Uh, again, I broached this subject with Derek, so you should get it as well. Um, the, the COVID-19. Uh, there's a growing scientific opinion, that it's here to stay. I, th- I, I, I think it's the prevailing scientific opinion now. If it's here to stay, and the logic is we've got to face it sometime. Uh, a scientific opinion is that the longer we avoid facing it we, uh, we as a community get into a worse position for endless reasons but what is your general approach or would be your general approach to trying to live with the coronavirus which is what they're talking about now
1: Obviously, the thing about COVID and the thing about scientific opinions about COVID is, as we've seen, it changes almost every day. <laughs> so I, I'm really hoping that scientific opinion is wrong and that we'll find out next week that actually they found a cure. And so But failing that, yes, we do need to work out what we're going to do to live with it. It may end up very well being something that we just have to sort of take into account as part of our everyday lives, like like AIDS and things like that. You know, we... we as, as a as a people of the world we got used to that being around we take sensible precautions out of a out of a regular habit so <laughs> a certain amount of that needs to come into come into play if we are going to open ourselves up to this then we need to get used to a certain amount of safety precautions as part of our daily habit. One of the big risks we have here is we haven't gotten used to things like mask wearing, washing our hands constantly. We haven't been living like we're in a pandemic. So you've got a lot of of educating to do if you're going to go down that path of opening up and just saying, look, right, we need to live with it. But for COVID in particular, again, this is something I'd like to see where we don't necessarily just follow the UK path. We We need to work out our own way with this one. So many nations are doing it differently with varying degrees of success. Frankly, the UK has been one of the harder hit ones, so maybe we need to look at other nations, I'm thinking of New Zealand, who've actually, by and large, managed to keep keep community outbreaks at bay. But again, it's, it's about finding our own solutions to these issues, working out what we're comfortable with, not necessarily what the UK says is best, what we're comfortable with in terms of how quickly we want to open up.
2: Well, yeah, okay. Um I have to say, Andrew, I'm not entirely convinced. I I mean, we cannot sit around as Fortress St Helena forever. There's there's the undeniable economic um, effects. Nothing will happen on economic development while we have got all the borders more or less shut. Um, I'm saying nothing. And and then there's the the, the thing about... um, Getting a genuine inu- immunity to the to, to the pandemic, and you can't get a, a genuine inu- immunity to this particular coronavirus unless you're exposed to it. Even There's then, a hell of a lot of
1: conundrums going on. I was going to say because even then, you know, people catch it twice. Yeah. There are cases of that. So you know, just by exposing yourself to it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to never get it again. And that's well, and that's the point. Well, we yeah, well,
2: well, we could discuss it a long time, but, but <laughs> the th- the theory is that like the other four coronaviruses that are knocking around the more you're exposed to it the bigger the, the better your immunity is to it and that, i would say is, is a bullet that's got to be bitten as i did say Derek, uh, you know by this next government at some point during the four years
1: so Obviously, there's, yes, on the one side you have the economic drivers that you need to look at. I'm not, I, I'm not sure I completely agree with you that no economic development can happen, but certainly if you're looking at regrowing tourism and stuff, yes, that cannot happen with quarantine there. People aren't going to sit two weeks in a quarantine facility on their holiday. There's, there's still other avenues we can look for. I mean, cable areas aren't necessarily aren't necessarily entirely dependent on footfall coming through here. I mean, that's one of the great advantages of it. If we are going to bite that bullet, though, as you say, in Rise, and if we are going to have to bite that bullet and say, right, we need to open up, we need to look at that CCC, we need to look at the hospital, we need to make sure that those who are going to be most susceptible to this virus are safe. Well, as you were saying, the hospital really couldn't cope. For some the stuff. hospital can't cope. They it's haven't got facilities. It's a big issue, a, lot of, a lot of thought. We had to build a second temporary hospital at Bradley's on the off chance it was going to be used. Mm. If we know, because if, if we open the doors to it, it will come. If we know it's going to be used, we're going to have to build something a lot more substantial than what we have now to cope. Yeah, yeah it's a big issue. And the best of luck if you get elected. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay.
0: Just uh, final. I
2: was
0: just getting into this. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: we we'll everybody. Of otherwise, um, we're being biased or something. <laughs>
0: So yeah, anything you want to say
1: before we say good luck with your campaign just to thank you to the people who've nominated me thank you to the messages of support I've had since going live with the campaign if anything I just want to say, I don't want to make promises and say look I want to do plan A, plan B, plan C obviously these are things you want to do you never know what you're going to face once you actually get in there so, but I do want to make one promise and that's that if elected I'm going to be open I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be hardworking, and I'm going to be held to account, and especially by you guys. I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for coming to Saint Ephrem, and as I said, good luck with the campaign. Thank,
0: thank you, you. Andrew. Thank
2: you.